You are listening to the sermons of Hicksville Cornerstone Church in Hicksville, Ohio. To find out more about our church, visit www.hickscc.org. That's H-I-X-C-C.org. Hope you enjoy today's sermon. So Lord, as we look at this topic of discipleship, we dive deeper under the surface of what it means to be a disciple, what it means to be human, and what it means to fulfill the Great Commission. Lord, I ask that you would challenge us, that you would move us, you would encourage us to, do the, to, to follow the Great Commission in the days ahead. In your son's name I pray. Amen. Okay, some of you know at this point that I have a background in theater. I have a degree in it. Unfortunately, because of that, good acting is really important to me. So, like, if I see a really bad movie with bad acting, it hurts me, like, here, like, in my heart. It's hard to watch. Um, but, now, you don't think much of good acting when you see it on TV or on stage or on a movie, because when it happens, it just seems natural. But we have all, all of us, whether you've had a theater degree or not, have experienced bad acting, whether it's on screen, it's on a first date, or maybe it's a family member who has been caught in a lie, we all know what bad acting looks like. So what makes a good actor and what makes a bad actor? Is it the delivery of the lines? Is it just the transfer of information? If you get the lines wrong, does that make a bad actor? Well, that plays into it, right? But some of the best acting I've ever seen in my life is in silence. Some of the worst acting I've ever seen in my life is also in silence. I love silent film. What about emotions? Maybe it's emotions. If you don't match the emotion with the information, something looks off, right? And sure, emotions play a part, but we all have seen acting in which emotions are oversold, right? They are way too much in their emotions. Um, and that's typically how you can know someone's lying, too, or if you're watching um, a Spanish soap opera. So clearly, emotions aren't primary, right? I was in a show in high school. Honestly, I don't remember which one. I was in a lot. But I remember being in a scene, uh, preparing a scene, and, and I, I thought I'm doing pretty well, right? I thought, was, I thought I was the Leonardo DiCaprio of my high school, right? And suddenly, we get those words from the director that every actor kind of, you know, freaks out when they say, cut, 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 cut. And I look at Mrs. Dean, who is, was like another mother to me in high school. She's amazing. Mrs. Dean's amazing. And she says, in that moment, AJ, what do you want? What do you want in this moment? Now, I'm literally pulling back the literal and figurative curtain when it comes to acting. But what makes a good actor versus a bad actor is if their desire, what they want, matches their information and emotions. If you don't have the want question answered before you enter that moment on stage, no one's going to believe you. You have to know the answer to the question, what do you desire? Because that's the fuel for every one of our actions in life. Every statement, 
or feeling that you partake in is linked with a desire. When as an actor you can answer that question, that's when it begins to become real. That's, that, that's what happens when it begins to feel like real life. Think about it. In 99.99999% of every conversation or interaction you have ever had in your life, you want something out of it. You want the waitress to get the order right. If you're the waiter, you want a good tip at the end of the night. You want our friends to like us. We want our children or parents not just to listen to us, but to actually hear us. It's what we want. You want the person across the table at a cheap Mexican restaurant to fall in love with you? Or we just want the pastor to shut their mouth so we can all go home? You see, we desire, because we're human, we're human. And I would argue that the, the moment in your life where you lack desire, you're more dead than people that have taken their last breath already. Because I can promise you, in eternity, there are desires, no matter what side you fall on. We talked about this last week. What discipleship is, is to be made more and more into the image of Christ. And what the Holy Spirit primarily changes is not language, although he does do that sometime. It's not primarily emotions, although it does affect our emotions. But primarily what the Holy Spirit changes is our hearts. It's why the Bible spends so much time addressing our hearts, our desires. They're literally everywhere in Scripture. My, even, I, I, I'm going to make this bold claim, Right? If you go home today and you open up a random section of scripture and you read two chapters, it is probably going to focus on the heart. Now, before I begin to review, I don't want to oversell the topical sermon today. Discipleship is not 30 minutes cooking time and bam, right? Deep dish disciple. It's not how this works. Discipleship is a lifelong process that happens in community with each other and with God. And so this idea just sets the stage, or to use or continue the cooking analogy, it whets the appetite. So let's review where we were last week. Last week, we looked at the Great Commission. Not the Great Suggestion, but the Great Commission. If you're a Christian, you're called to go and make disciples. You're called to something. What does it say? Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I've commanded you, and behold, I will be with you always to the end of the age. Problem is, outside a church service, occasionally, we don't use the word disciple in everyday language. So many of us are like, I don't know what a disciple is because that's, in our nat that's not in our natural vocabulary. And so we defined a disciple last week. A disciple is a follower, a worshiper, and a witness. And we saw as we looked at scripture and as we looked at the world last week that everyone is indeed a disciple. My two-year-old can't get enough of Paw Patrol, right? And my 90-year-old grandparent checked the stock market every day. All of us are followers and worshipers and witnesses to something. 
We all are a disciple of something. To be these things takes place at the very core of who we are. To be a disciple is inescapable. When we talked about being a disciple of Jesus, though, it's a little bit different, right? Scripture tells us that to be a disciple of Jesus means to be born again, to be a new creation, to have a new heart. Not just a new mind, a new heart. And when we have our new hearts, then our minds naturally, over time, begin to function with new ideas because our hearts have changed. And that's what discipleship is. Discipleship is when we have a new heart, and now we live differently. Dallas Willard, we talked about it last week, had a great definition of discipleship. This is what he said. Discipleship is when we progressively replace ideas of darkness with the ideas of the kingdom of heaven in our hearts, the very depths of who we are. Well, how do we do that? How do we replace ideas that are rooted once in the kingdom of darkness with ideas that are now rooted in the kingdom of light? Two ways. We've all probably experienced it too. First, sometimes it's abruptly. Some of us have gone through such traumatic experiences that happen in a moment that it changes our outlook of life. Sometimes we substitute darkness for other darkness in those moments of trauma, and sometimes it wakes us up to the reality of what we should be living and the way we should be living, and we start walking in the light. Other times it's divine intervention. I think many of us have heard stories of people coming to Christ and suddenly vices that they've dealt with their whole entire life because of the grace of God in that moment are gone. The other way that people change and replace ideas of darkness with the ideas of light is progressively. It's that drip, 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 drip of change ideas over time where suddenly the dam breaks and the water of life pours forth. But that typically happens intentionally over a long period of time. Most people recognize how culture bends us to darkness, but it can be said with seeing the light too. Discipleship takes time, intentionality, and good progressive relationships. This is the beautiful part. Good progressive relationships can heal traumatic experiences that we've experienced in our life. We talked about those five elements of formation last week. Habits, time, intimacy, community, and instruction. And whether you're a disciple of baseball, of marriage, of cooking, of Jesus, these five things help us grow in what we want to be better at. They are the ingredients to grow. So what does the Christian life look like? Well, let's be real, right? Many of us have given our life to Jesus. We've been born again, but we still struggle with certain areas of our life. We still struggle with sin, some of us on a daily basis. And we're still trapped in darkness. We desire to live more like Christ, but it's hard. Second Corinthians actually talks about that. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, that is, the image of Christ, from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. From one degree to another, we grow more like Christ. If you're like me, I don't like things taking time, Right? I don't like waiting on the deep dish pizza when I can just throw a thin slice pizza in the fryer and I'm done in two minutes, right? High enough heat. All you pizza experts in the audience completely understand this, right? But discipleship takes time. Change takes time. And in the Christian life, it looks like many times, and the majority of the time, it's one degree to another. Now, how do we do that? 
How does that work itself out? Maybe we need a list. If we follow a list, then we know how we can be more like Jesus. Nope, it's not how it works, right? We saw that in the life of the Pharisees. They loved lists more than anybody. And it didn't help them walk like Jesus more. Maybe we need the right thoughts, right? The right doctrine. If I have the right doctrine, then I will live like Jesus. Let's just look at the last five years of Christian leaders that have fallen into deep sin. Just the last five. The right doctrine doesn't necessarily reveal a changed heart. What we need are new desires. What we need are new desires. If you have new desires, that reveals that your heart has changed. Think about it this way. Everyone at some point in their life, maybe, maybe I'm overextending it, but most people at some point in their life have wanted to get in shape, right? Like fitness, you've wanted to get in shape. And by shape, I don't, I had a friend in college that was like, I'm in shape, round is a shape, that's not the shape I'm talking about, okay? I'm talking, but what that takes primarily is a new desires. Do people not get in shape because they followed the wrong list of exercises? Most of the time, no. Is it, is it their emotions, right? They followed the wrong doctrine of getting in shape? Most of the time, no. Why do people not get in shape? Well, because I desire that cheesecake. Or for me, it's chips and salsa from Lapitas. Oh, so good. More than I do a six-pack of abs. We need new desires. It's the same way with money right? Why do I put money in my children's educational fund every month? It's because when I held my children in my arms for the first time, my very heart changed to where I desired their future well-being more than a regular steak dinner or premium coffee every morning. And I lived in Texas, y'all. That steak is good. That's hard. And there are days when they're talking back to me where I'm like, steak is on the menu, boys. What keeps people who have said the sinner's prayer from actually becoming disciples is that their desires have not changed. They do not have a new heart. They might call Jesus Lord with their lips, but it was an echo from the pastor who is leading the prayer, not an echo from the heart. Mankind are not primarily thinkers. Mankind are not primarily feelers. Mankind are not primarily bodies. Mankind is primarily desirers. And it might be are there. I meant to ask my wife how to work English, but it could be mankind is or are primarily desires. I'll let the English teachers in the room correct me later. And it is because of this that we are followers and worshipers and witnesses. We follow worship and witness to things that we desire. Now, we've put a picture together. It's on the front of your bulletin, so if you want to turn there, because that's easier for you to see, that's fine. Um, this picture explains all of life, so if you want to, like, frame it when you get home, put it on a really nice wall, you're welcome to. I'm just kidding, by the way. But for those of you that are visual, maybe this will help. In the picture, you're the tree. That's you. We know from our study of Scripture 
that if you are in Christ, you have transferred kingdoms. Colossians 1.13 tells us, He has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. This kingdom of his beloved Son is also called the kingdom of heaven or kingdom of light in other areas of scripture. And there's a day that's coming that when Jesus returns for good, the darkness will be gone. Bye-bye. But until then, you and I, like riding a horse, straddle the two kingdoms. The kingdom of darkness does not produce anything. Notice how all the fruit is near the light. It might look like the darkness produced it, but without any common grace from God, we don't create anything good. The devil, or darkness, is not a creative agent. Evil does not create anything. Evil twists good things and then calls it good. It's deception. The kingdom of light is the kingdom of heaven. That's where the fruit is found. And as we take ideas and transfer them to the kingdom of light, we redeem old ideas of darkness. We offer fruit to the world, really good fruit that makes much of Jesus, that is life-giving, that feeds the poor, that shelters the broken, that brings actual life to those around them. Hence why the birds are on the side of light that nest in the trees of the air. The darkness has none of that. The seven mountains behind the trees are the seven mountains of culture. That's a topic for another day. But the soil is important. That's why it takes up a good portion of the picture. Because that's where we draw our energy from, right? The soil is where we draw our desires. And if you're planted in good soil, the word of God, you're connecting to the living water, connected to the living water. And if you're in bad soil, the roots will eventually falter and the whole tree will come down. As someone who just moved from a desert, I can promise you that's the case. Desires that reflect Christ bring life. Psalm 145:19. He fulfills the desires of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. And then the opposite, desires that reflect darkness bring death. The wicked man sees it and is angry. He gnashes his teeth and melts away. The desire of the wicked will perish. So the question before you today in that whole setup is this. What do you desire? What do you desire? What soil are you drawing your power from? Is it the soil of financial security? That's what you desire more than anything. Maybe the opposite, wealth beyond measure. Good health. Children that will actually listen to you. Maybe that's what you desire. Maybe it's sexual satisfaction. Job satisfaction. Love. All of, many of these things are very good. Another way of asking this question is simply this. Who is on the throne of your heart? Who is on the throne of your heart? We've been asking that question for the last three months as we've gone through the book of Judges. Child of God, have you taken time to answer that question? Or do you not desire to? Philip Sheldrake says this, desire haunts us. In its deepest sense, it is the God-given dimension of human identity. As such, desire is what powers all human spirituality. Yet at the same time, spirituality in Christianity and in other faiths is concerned with how we focus our desire. 
At the heart of Christian spirituality is a sense that humanity is both cursed and blessed with restlessness and longing that can only ultimately be satisfied in God. It is as though our desire is infinite in extent and that it cannot settle for anything less. It pushes us through the limitations of the present moment and of our present places towards a future that is beyond our ability to conceive. Our desires are very much linked with our dreams. This is why the greatest teachers of Christian spirituality were so concerned with this God-filled desire and with how we understand it and channel it. I'll ask it again. What do you desire? What do you desire? Now, I have to talk about this because it's the water we swim in, desire in the 21st century. One of the greatest myths in the 21st century, in the 20th century, is the idea that you can't help what you desire. That you and I are nothing more than a body in motion, fulfilling the needs of that body at the present moment, and so long as my desire doesn't hurt anyone around me, I should act on whatever desire the body longs for. We've all heard or watched maybe the Hallmark Channel movies where a woman's desire for her husband wanes and it's filled with greater desire for a man that she sits next to on a plane. And our culture would go as far to say that to squelch that desire is morally wrong. Leading conservative thinkers, these are the leading conservative thinkers, will argue that porn really isn't such a big deal if it keeps you from adultery. I mean, we're just bodies. People break commitments all the time in today's world, right? Because they don't desire to fulfill their commitments anymore. But this idea that you can't do anything about changing or, or waning desire, this is patently false. As the Colson Center so regularly puts it, ideas have consequences. Bad ideas have victims. And the five elements of formation that we talked about last week address just that. When you engage in those five elements of formation, it refuels, it fans the flame of desire for the kingdom of God. There was a famous medieval reformer referred to as St. John of the Cross. He wrote about some of the differences, medieval reformer, differences between the early days of a new convert and the long road of obedience that takes with the spiritual life. When someone first begins to follow God, God fills them with a strong desire to follow him. As one person puts it, this is the initial desire. It's like a spiritual starter kit. Many of us, when we came to Saving Faith, we experienced that. Our longing for the Lord was like, bam, I'm on fire for Jesus. And this initial desire, though, nevertheless, eventually fades. The strong emotional pull towards Christ's lessons providing the disciple with opportunity to seek Christ in deeper, more authentic ways. God eventually removes the props in order that we might begin to develop a stronger, more mature devotion to God, a faith that is not dependent on emotions, but on a solid ground of deep, consistent prayer life with the triune God. The props are removed not to punish but to draw us even closer to the God of the universe. But many of us have not been discipled to do that. We just assume the Christian life is as dull as it has become in our own, instead of the great adventure 
that God has called us to. God created us with desire in mind. God created us with emotions and a heart and a mind. But if desire is only something, hear me, if desire is only something, as the world will tell us, that happens to us and we can't inflame it, well then, we will always be left as its slave. But we are not left to be controlled by our own whimsical desires. Christ promises to change our desires, to change our very heart. And ironically, it is when this happens that everything else gets put into place. All our desires, when ordered rightly, are used and magnified God in such a way that it brings joy. And what was once on the throne of our hearts now is subject to the one who should be. They are redeemed when we bring them from darkness to light. Well, what does it mean to order our desires? What does it mean to order our, order our desires? Jesus speaks of this in his famous phrase in Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven through 40. And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. Not the same, but it's like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. And this is where we talk about ordering our desires. There is a reason the first commandment comes first, and then the second, and then they're alike. I had a dear friend. I have a dear friend. He's not gone. I have a dear friend that desired to give his children all the things they could ever want. Security, joy, assurance, love. Oh, notice how all those things are good things, right? We should want those things for our kids. All the things that exemplify the second commandment. So the father gave his children the world at the expense of the first commandment. He might have taught his son to play catch, to cook a steak dinner, to ask out a girl, to balance a checkbook, but he never taught his son about Jesus. He never taught his son to order his desires. And in the process, he neglected the scriptures. It's very clear to fathers. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in discipline. It's the same root word as disciple. <laughs> and instruction of the Lord. Parents, Jesus is clear in Mark 8. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? We need parents in the room, grandparents in the room. This is just, you're not like off. Aha, I'm done, okay? Grandparents in the room too. We need to model ordering our desires so our children won't be governed by theirs. It's the best thing you can do for our kids. I think this is most easily demonstrated in a money analogy. Look, God made you a steward of your finances. How, he, how, does, how do you use the money he's entrusted you with? My guess is, if you're like, hmm, everybody, it's to meet your desires. That's how you use your money. But do you desire the kingdom of heaven? Or is the kingdom of heaven just an afterthought? I started learning about the blessings of giving specifically to a church when I was in high school. But it really didn't become real until me and Corey got married. 
Because then we have to like game plan the rest of our lives, right? Like money is the number one reason people get divorced. So we should probably be on the same game plan, right? Not different playbooks. Not that we don't have disagreements about money. We, We can talk to us after, right? But we both agreed that we desire to order our, our lives under the kingdom of heaven. Now, hear me. When me and Corey got married, we were po. Po. You've heard me say it before. We couldn't afford the other O and the R, right? We were both going to seminary, living in an old apartment. That The days that we wanted to feel the breeze, we could just shut all the windows and sit on our couch, right? It didn't make financial sense, C-E-N-T-S. It did not make financial sense for us to tithe or to give to foreign missions. And to do so, we had to trust the Lord that he would provide for all our needs. And in those years, we went without a lot. We choose not to meet our immediate desires because we had a greater desire. Now, we never went hungry, right? But our meals were not steak dinners. Sometimes they were peanut butter and jelly. At least once a week, we had a peanut butter and jelly dinner. Our getaways weren't lavish, but the Lord blessed us abundantly as we put first things first, which is what a tithe is technically. A tithe, by definition, is the first 10%, not the last. We made his desires our desires intentionally. Time, habit, community, those five spiritual formations, right? And then, still Poe, still Poe, we started giving the missionaries Like, in addition to our 10%, we started to give it to missionaries. And now we're seeing the kingdom of God expand in Asia and Africa. We're hearing about great stories of how the Lord is working in other places. And we were blessed. Others were blessed, and God was glorified. We loved our neighbors best as we loved the Lord first. And the reason why so many Christians do not have their desires matching the heart of God is simply because their desires are not are out of order. I'm not saying, all the men, okay? I know it's Mother's Day, but hear me, all the men. I'm not saying we shouldn't desire steak or good meat or like vacations to Europe. I'm not, sa- I'm not saying we shouldn't desire those things, but we want to desire them in the right order. When I eat my steak, I thank God boldly. Thank you for this at least three inches, right? Oh, right? But I'm ordering my desires, or I'm trying to order my desires right. But to find the right order in individual lives takes more than just a 30-minute pep talk on a Sunday, even if you like the guy. It takes time, habit, intimacy, community, and instruction so that we can replace ideas of darkness with the ideas of the kingdom of heaven, And while in the kingdom of heaven, here's the best part, while in the kingdom of heaven, we find the joy and the peace that all of us at our core have desired our whole lives. You see, we're not the only people that have desires. Our God has desires. So if we're to be made in the image of God and to be made more and more into the image of his son, what are the desires that God has? How do our desires match Christ if we don't know what he desires? There is one verse in the Bible that speaks of the very heart of God. It's Jesus actually saying it. It's one of my favorite verses in scripture. It's in Matthew eleven twenty-eight through 29. It says this, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, 
and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. The very, hear this, hear this, the very heart of Christ is tilted towards you, not away from you. He is not a tyrant, although he is a ruler. He is a servant, although he is a king. This is the heart of Christ. And his desire, hear this, is to be with you. He knows you by name. He knows all the hairs on your head. He desires to walk with you. You. So that God may be glorified. Noticed in the next verse how his desires are in order. He's approaching God with his desires. This is the upper room. It's at the end of his life. This is his prayer for his followers. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. A righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these that know you have... These know that you have sent me. I may know to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. And as his desires become your own, right? Your heart and his heart is so intertwined that he says that he is in you. He's in his people. And you become more and more his disciple. And you desire to see others become more and more his disciple. One degree at a time. For that's how the kingdom of heaven works. Jesus doesn't stutter when he says this. Matthew 13, 31 through 33, he talks about how the kingdom of heaven grows. He put, together, he put another parable before them saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, you could say a one-degree seed. But when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. And he told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. Do you desire the kingdom of heaven to go forth? for the great commission to be successful, for the, hearts of Christ to, for the heart of Christ to change the world, then love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and love your neighbor. Desire their well-being as you do your own. 